So it happened to me once again this week. Um, perhaps it has happened to you as well. But I woke up in the middle of the night and I couldn't go back to sleep, at, at least for, at least not for uh, a long time. There are times where this happens to me. I'm, I'm getting to the age where occasionally I'll go through these cycles where uh, almost like Groundhog Day, you just roll over, you open your eyes, it's the same time on the clock and you can't sleep. That's not what this was. This was me not being able to cut things off in my mind. This was me not being able to shut things off. This, this was me being anxious, and I just couldn't, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get my mind to relax. And I begin with this because I believe the psalmist has been there. In fact, as we'll see, I think that's where he is at least in part, as he's writing this portion of our text tonight. And my bet is, my bet is, you've been there as well. We're going to pick up once again with our study uh, through the longest chapter in the Bible. We're in Psalm 119. We've been working our way through this semester. Tonight, we're going to read verses 145 through 160. So I would invite you to take your Bibles and and turn there and look along with us. Uh, And I'll start reading... Um, in verse 145 in just a second. But I have one overarching thought or one predominant theme for our uh, text tonight. Uh, And it's not grammatically correct. And I want you to know that I know that. But it is theologically correct. And I want us to remember it. And so you may want to write this down. I'll repeat it several times throughout the sermon. But but if you want to get a head start, here it is. Though it may be real, there's something that is realer. While enemies may be close, there's one that is closer. Though it may be real, there is something that is realer. While enemies may be close, there is one that is closer. Keep that in mind as we listen to God's word for us tonight. This is the psalmist, Psalm 119, verse 145. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. Hear my voice. According to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that I have founded or that you have founded them forever. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. 
Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time uh, together. Lord God, who we continue to learn, is gracious and loving, providing the very way in which we can approach you. We ask for your presence in these moments as we turn to your word. We ask that you would meet us no matter how we find ourselves, beaten up or tired or exhausted or worried or anxious or filled with what seems like insurmountable obstacles in front of us. Or maybe, just maybe we're here and we're somewhat comfortable. So comfortable, in fact, that we've, deci- we've deceased, deceived ourselves uh, that we don't need you, and yet here we are. Our lives are a compilation of beauty and triumph and tragedy and terror. We're rife with contradictions. Like a yo-yo, we find ourselves coming closer to you, only then to find ourselves moving away from you. And yet you continue to love us, to call us, to invite us. You invite us to see ourselves as you see us. So help us to believe that though you know us even more than we know ourselves, it does not send you running from us or disgusted by us, but instead, may we feel your red-hot pursuit of us. May we hear the very feet of the hound of heaven on our heels, to renew, to clean, to restore, to heal. May we see the way in which you accomplish this, through the death and life of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Though it may be real, there is something that is realer. While enemies may be close, there is one that is closer. In this passage, we see this truth play out in the psalmist's anxiousness, in his assessment, and in his assurance. We see it in his anxiousness, we see it in his assessment, and we see it in his assurance. Let's look at his anxiousness. It doesn't take long to get there, does it? If you do just a quick survey in verses 145 through 149, you hear things like, with my whole heart I cry. Answer me, O Lord. Verse 145. I call to you, save me. Verse 146. Hear my voice. Psalm 1, or verse 149. And maybe like me, you can easily hear it in his voice because you've heard your own voice cry out this way. God, can you hear me? God, are you, are you listening to me? In our despair, we cry out things like, oh God, please know. Save me. Please, Lord, listen to me. The psalmist is anxious. One of, the, one of the reasons that I love Scripture and, and one of the reasons I find it so trustworthy is because it's just brutally honest about the reality in which we so often find ourselves. Anxiousness or anxiety or anxiousness, yes, about the realities of our life. You can hear it clearly. You can hear it in his voice, but you can also see it in his practice. Look at verse 147 and 148. Notice the psalmist says, I rise before the dawn. That was me the other night. My eyes awake before the watches of the night. Verses 147 and verse 148 are in reverse chronological order. And they give a picture of one who spends the whole night in a prayer vigil that lasts through the dawn hours. 
Again, it's what I experienced this week when I woke up and found myself praying to God, number one, allow me to find the rest. Allow me to shut my mind off so that I can actually sleep. But then secondly, to not just answer my prayer about sleep, but to answer the prayer about my concern that was actually keeping me awake. I think that's where the psalmist is. Perhaps the psalmist was more intentional, maybe with his being awake at night, than I was. I was reactive. Maybe he was intentional. Perhaps it was his intent to spend the night in prayer before the dawn. But in either case, the prayers come from a place of anxiousness. Surely the psalmist and I are not alone in this. Again, I bet you've been there. You've had nights like this. That person at school that just won't leave you alone and is bullying you on social media or in the halls or in the classroom. It makes it hard for you to go to sleep before you have to go see them again tomorrow at school. You feel sick to your stomach and you just want to stay home one more day. Or that person that you went on the date with but didn't want to see again. Or that person you just broke up with. Or your former spouse who continually tries to contact you even though you've asked them to stop. And it's not that they just won't leave you alone. It's the toxic, hate-filled messages that are left on your voicemail. That are waiting for you in your inbox. That you see across the screen when you respond to the text alert. It's the persistent running through of personal boundaries. It's the personal feeling of being unsafe. Or that person that just wants you out of your job. And not only makes it clear that, you want you, that they want you out, but it's the extent to which that person goes to make it a reality that continues to baffle you and amaze you. Or maybe it's a coworker that seems to be after your job and you no longer trust that when they stop by your office, they're there just to say, hey, you get the sense that they're trying to figure out where they want the furniture and what color they want the walls when they move into your office. Or it's the financial pressures that once make manageable bills seem overwhelming, or because of market downturns or new economic realities, even small unplanned things like extra medical bills or car repairs or system failures in your home make every phone call feel like the creditor is on your heels. Or maybe you're on a good run of bad luck. And as you've just said out loud, I don't think I can take one more thing. The phone rings, and you are literally, you are literally afraid to pick it up because of what might be said and what you might hear on the other end of the line. Have you been there? When those feelings of anxiousness are there, when it feels like those enemies are just pushing down on you and getting closer and closer and closer, you know the anxiousness the psalmist is feeling because you and I have felt it as well. We cry out in our anxiety because it's just oh so real. Though it may be real, and it is, there is something that is realer. While enemies may be close, there is one who is closer. How does the psalmist deal with his anxiousness? It's interesting. He makes an assessment. He makes an assessment. I don't talk about it a lot. But those of you who know me, 
who really know me and know my past know that part of my life was spent as a child of the street. And I'll just tell you, it doesn't take long on the street to learn um, that there are monsters out there and there are many life lessons. And I learned from these monsters lessons and monsters that I'll never forget. The street was called Sesame. And in this particular case, the monster was named Grover. And using just two words, he taught me something that I have never forgotten. The concept of near and far. Now, I don't want to spoil it for those of you who haven't seen that episode of Sesame Street. But since it aired for the first time on April 22nd, 1975, if you haven't seen it by now, well, just close your ears for a second. But for those of you who are interested or who may remember this particular portion of Sesame Street, Grover is looking into the camera of the children's television network or workshop, and he says this, this is near. And then he turns and he runs or he hops and he says, this is far. And then he runs forward, he says, near, and he runs back, far, and he does it over and over and over again until he collapses from exhaustion. Very effective. I've never forgotten it. In fact, I thought about it when I read this passage. Look at verse one, look at verse uh, 150. You see, Grover explained, what Grover explained to me as a little boy turns out to be the assessment of the psalmist. Near and far. Verse 150. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. And again in verse 155 and 156. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Now, if you run those verses to the grid of Grover, near and far, notice what is near. Verse 150, the psalmist says, his enemies are near. That's not hyperbole. That's not just a feeling. It's reality. The enemies of the psalmist, the ones who persecute him with evil purpose, they are, in fact, near. And getting nearer. What then is far? It might seem like the psalmist is about to say that God is far. Or at very least seems far away. But notice that's not what he says. The second part of verse 15 tells us these enemies, these persecutors are far from God's law. So the enemies of the psalmist, these persecutors, are near to the psalmist, far from God's law, his word, his commandments. But then he goes further. Again, verse 155. Salvation is far, but from whom? From the psalmist? No. Salvation is far from the wicked. Because they do not seek the statutes of God. 
The wicked are near to the psalmist, but far from God's law. The wicked are far from salvation, but notice who's not. It's not explicit, but it's implied in verses 153, 154, and 156. Verse 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law, as opposed to my enemies, the ones who are far from God's law. Verse 154, plead my cause and redeem or save me, give me life according to your promises. I, the psalmist, am near to your law, save me as opposed to, the, to my enemies, as opposed to the wicked who are far from salvation. Great is your mercy, O Lord, give me life according to your rules. The enemies of the psalmist may be near, but they are far from God's law. The enemies of the psalmist are far from salvation. But do you know who is near? Listen, at least 10 or 11 times in our text, the psalmist draws upon how close God's law is to him. And in the mind of the psalmist, the law of God and God himself are inseparable. Though it may be real, and it is, there is something that is realer. While enemies may be close, there is one who is closer. I don't care how close your enemies are. Even even if they feel infinitesimally close. (laughs) Listen, if the eternal, omnipotent, redeeming God is close to you, your enemies are infinitely far from you. I don't care how close they may seem. If you are in Christ, if your redeeming, omnipotent, eternal God is near to you, your enemies cannot harm you. They can't. Martin Luther gets it right. He often does. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of moral ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft, his power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be loosing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must, he must, he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. Look, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Martin Luther gets it. The psalmist gets it. 
Are you hearing it? Though it may be real, and it is, there's something that is realer. While enemies may be close, there's one who is closer. Which gives the psalmist his utmost assurance. How do we see it? This assurance from the psalmist, he sees it in law, in love, and in life. In law, in love, and in life. First in law. Throughout Psalm 119, the writer uses eight synonymous Hebrew words to describe the law or the Torah of God. Generally, when you and I hear the law of God, we, we, we think Ten Commandments. Or, or we view it through the Pauline lens of, of one's ability to keep the law not being sufficient for salvation. Okay, Those are legitimate uses of the word law. That's not the entirety of the way in which that word is used. And it's not exactly how the psalmist means it, at least all-inclusively in Psalm 119. It's much more than that. And the eight synonymous words that he uses give a fuller picture. It helps paint in the lines, if you will. And all eight of these synonymous descriptions are used at least once, if not more than once, in our passage tonight. These eight descriptors of the law are translated in the ESV and maybe in your version, the version in which you read from tonight. They're, they're translated like this. Statutes, such as in verses 145 and 155. Testimonies or decrees. Psalm 146, 152, and 157. Word, Psalm, uh, verse 147 and 160. Promises, verse 148, 154, and 158. Ordinance, verse 150, 156. Commandments, verse 151. Precepts, verse 159. And it's in the law of God where the psalmist finds this assurance. But how? Well, look, for instance, back up at verse 152. He says, long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. A couple of things to note here. Verse 152, the idea here is that God's precepts, his testimonies, are woven into the very order of creation that you have or because you have founded or fixed them forever, the psalmist says. Jewish rabbis would have correctly taught from this verse, among others, the idea of an eternal Torah or law that pre-existed creation because it was based on the very character of God himself. The Apostle Paul, who remember describes himself, what, as a Hebrew among Hebrews, right? Picks up on that same idea in Romans 1, verses 19 through 23. And he says this, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Remember, the psalmist says, describes it this way, salvation is far from them. Paul continues, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen, don't miss this. God's law is all around you. It's woven into the created fabric of the world. It's also woven into God's redemption of the cosmos as well. The working out of that revelation promise that he's making all things new. 
Again, from verse 152, long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. But also look back at verse 146. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. Listen, what the ESV editors translate as your testimonies can actually be understood linguistically one of two ways. In Hebrew, it reads, testimonies of God, which either means, right, God's testimonies about himself or testimonies others give or say about God. You see that? Okay. Testimonies of God, either meaning God possesses them, right, they're his testimony, so he says them about himself, or... They are said by others about God. And as I wrestled with that this week, trying to determine which it is, I'm going to cheat. I actually think it's both. Because in context, the psalmist, again, is talking about this woven fabric. So I think the psalmist is saying God made sure to weave it in creation and redemption. All of creation screams of God's work. And so do the testimonies of his people's. Both work harmoniously together to impress upon the psalmist and to impress upon us the truth of this reality. I may, at 2.30 in the morning, through anxious eyes, struggle to see God at work in my life, but everything around me screams of God's activity and faithfulness. Therefore, I can be assured that God is at work. Yes, even in my life and even when I can't see it. I thought about it on my way, literally, down the steps to come here. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, says this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. And we stop right there. And we go, amen. Isn't that great? And we miss what comes next. Do you know what comes next? Do you remember? So what he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is saying? Look, you don't believe God is at work in your life? He's at work in mine. And if he can work in mine, the chief of sinners, do you not think he can work in yours? Right? We struggle to see it. And yet the psalmist is saying, Paul is saying, it is woven all throughout the creation. It's everywhere. God is at work in your life. When you can't see it in your life, look around you. Listen to others. Look at creation, and it will all scream what God's word tells us over and over again. God is at work in you. God is at work in you. God is at work in you. We see it in law. We also see it in love. Verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Some translate this, the chief of your words is truth, or the first of your words is truth. 
you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament to see what words they use in this context, um, it uses the word logos here. You'll remember in the Gospel of John, it begins with, in the beginning was the logos. That first word, that first spoken word. And and John is telling us Jesus is that logos, right? And you continue through this passage. It talks about the covenantal steadfast love, the promise of God. Sean talked about this a few weeks ago, the the hesed, the, the covenantal promise of God. And you see that in verse 148, 149, 154, 159, and verse 160. The Apostle Paul, again, raised and trained in the Hebrew canon, declares in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, For all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. You want to see the fulfillment of the hesed, of the covenantal love of God, these, the steadfast love, the never-ending love of God. The psalmist talks about it. Paul names it. Because Paul saw it in the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Every promise that God has ever made is yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus is the fullest expression of the steadfast love of God. And it shows you the depth he goes to pursue us, to redeem us, to preserve us. And for the psalmist, this deliverance is not a vain hope. It's not, man, I just, I really hope. I, I, I hope. Nope. It is a certainty of certainties. It's grounded in three unmovable and shakable things. God's promise, verse 154. God's compassion, verse 156. And God's covenantal steadfast love, his hesed, verse 159. And then lastly, the final place the psalmist finds its assurance in law and love and lastly in life. Sixteen times, sixteen times in Psalm 119. The Hebrew word for life, hayab, is used. 25% of the times that it's used, it's found in the text we read tonight. 25% of the time. The law of God, the statutes of God, the testimonies of God, the word of God, the promises of God, the ordinances of God, the commandments of God, the precepts of God. It's there where the psalmist says, that's where I find life. Because it reminds me that God is close to me. So pulling it all together. Where does the psalmist find his assurance when his enemies, his very real enemies, are pressing in on him? He gets this assurance from the promises of God, grounded in the very character of God, attested to by testimonies which are interwoven and manifested in all of creation and everywhere the psalmist looks. This salvation is grounded in God's promise, his compassion, his steadfast love. And there and we can find life, life as it is meant to be because we are in Christ. And you don't get closer to God than in Christ. And so though it may be real, and it is, there is something that is realer. While enemies may be close, and they may be close, there is one that is closer. And that is your faithful God in and through Jesus Christ. And because of that, I can know that he will hold me fast. And because he holds me fast, I 
and all Christians can truly sing, whatever my lot, it is well. It is well with my soul. Praise be to God. Lord Jesus, I pray that in all our anxiety and all our worries, even, Father, when things seem so very, very real, and they are, I pray that you would remind us of what is realer, and that is, though enemies may be closing in on us, you are closer, for you have held us in Christ, in the Beloved. You have called us your own, and you have promised to redeem us, to save us, to protect us. And we saw it play out in the life and the death of Jesus. Death thought it won. There was no greater enemy than death. And yet, Jesus conquered death. He rose again. He's ascended on high and he leads his people in his train. So, Father, I pray that you would make our testimonies woven into the fabric of all of your creation, that when people look at us and say, what is different? We can say, because of Jesus, it is well with my soul. And we will sing it with such delight. Father, would you do this? Yes, for the benefit of, the, of your people, but ultimately would you do it for your glory? Because you alone are worthy of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's